Good morning, everybody. I think we're uh, going to go ahead and get started. Uh, thank everyone. Thanks to everyone for coming out um, early in the morning to talk higher education finance. Uh, welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival. This is our first panel of the day. Uh, my name is Matthew Watkins. I'm the higher education reporter for the Tribune, and um, I'll be your moderator today. Uh, first of all, I want to just run through a couple of quick kind of first panel of the day things um, and tell you that um, we this is the uh, education track for the festival. We also have other tracks throughout uh, campus, um, including on uh, the 2018 elections, President Trump, and uh, the media as well. So um, please kind of explore all the offerings uh, that we have. Um, lunch will be served on the main mall. I believe we have some food trucks, so if you're interested in that, please take advantage. Um, this panel here, Paying for Higher Education, is supported by Deloitte. Um, and uh, those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They played no role in determining the event's content, the panelists, or the line of questioning. Um, that's our little disclaimer here. And so um, today we've got a, a great panel um, here to talk about uh, higher ed financing and paying for it. And I'll just go down the line here and introduce them. Um, to my immediate left is Paula Short, the Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs and Provost of the University of Houston. She uh, previously served as Vice Chancellor of Academic, Academic Affairs for the Tennessee Board of Regents as well. Um, Moving down the line is former State Representative Dan Branch, who served in the Texas House from 2003 to 2015, um, a lot of that time as chairman of the House Higher Education Committee. Um, among his notable uh, accomplishments while on that committee was uh, the bill known as the Tier 1 Universities Bill, which uh, um, encouraged um, our universities, state universities, to uh, elevate their status, reach Tier 1 status in the state. Um, next on the line is Garrett Groves, Director of the Economic Opportunity Program at the Center for Public Policy Priorities, an independent think tank in Austin. He's also a scholar in residence at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Wow. Then we have Senator um, Kel Seliger, who's uh, represented District 31 in the Texas Senate since 2004. He's the former mayor of Amarillo and is chairman of the Senate Higher Education Committee. And we have uh, Brenda Hellier, Chancellor of San Jacinto College in the Houston area. Um, she's served in that role since 2009. So thank you all for coming out this morning. Um, I want to start with a quick review of this past spring, the, the 20, uh, 2017 legislative session. Um, coming into that session, I was all geared up to... Um, write about uh, tuition regulation, uh, the top 10% rule, a lot of kind of hot-button issues in, in the legislature. And then kind of the word of the, the session ended up, in higher ed at least, ended up being special items. And um, Senator Seliger, I want to start with you. Explain to me this term special items and how it became so important in 2017. Special items are those items not in the regular formulas, which is how we fund everybody and sort of sets down equality in funding. And so since, so, I don't know, since when, when universities say, we'd like to start a program or do this or that, uh, we need a special item. Those special items go into the budget very often having to do with things like political influence. There are now over 30, uh, 360 of them. At least one of them goes back to 1909, and some of them were for startups that go back 30 years when almost anything should successfully have been started up and be in full operation. What they also do then is fund certain universities disproportionately based upon when they started asking for special items and how many they asked for. And so our effort this time was um, to find a way not to take the money out of higher education, to, but to formulize it in some way to spread the money around because so many things going on on so many campuses are special and extraordinary and we rely on formula funding for higher education and we ought to default to that instead of this ad hoc system. And, and I made, admittedly, a real tactical error by informing the House Chairman, Chairman Lozano, 
what I was doing, but not, not bringing them on. We were so involved in the process in the Senate. By the time it rolled out to the House, they looked at it and said, what on earth is this? It was kind of like a mule looking at a new gate. What do we do with this? And so we didn't get as much done, but it's a discussion, I think, that uh, was, was very interesting and timely, and it's going to be productive over time. Representative Branch, uh, this, when this idea was first kind of rolled out, there was a lot of alarm raised by the universities. Um, I think um, maybe some not even necessarily disagreeing with the characterization of some special items, but the concern that you know there's over a billion dollars worth of those in the budget, and um, a, a concern that certain schools could be losing a lot of money because of this. Um, you were you know in the legislature for a long time. Do you kind of agree with that criticism of of how those special items worked, and, and did you agree with an idea that we needed to find a new way of doing this? Yeah, and well, we've we've uh, I mean. The chairman uh, said it well in terms of stating the, the, the challenge or problem. And so I think there's been an uh, ongoing uh, every two years. In fact, the schools don't like it because they got to come back in and hope under a discretionary system that they're going to actually get you know, their special item. And there's a little more uh, security in the formula, even though that's a discretionary. Well, those things can go up and down, even though the, 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 uh, the, the structure... Uh, gives some sense of security by having that in place. It's not like public ed that's baked into general law. So remember, one of the big differences is higher ed, it's at the discretion of the Senate Finance Committee and the, and the House Appropriations Committee. But there are examples over time where UT MD Anderson used to rely on a special item, and then they, they, they successfully educated the legislature in order to give them a formula, which actually ha- uh, has to do with patience, not education. And so they now have a, a, a steadier uh, and, in a sense, more secure stream. And so I think a lot of those schools, and I guess this will come up hopefully in the joint interim committee, uh, are there ways that, you know, don't call them special items. I think uh, Senator Selger was, was uh, you know, created the conversation that, that changed the, the nomenclature this time. And I think... Uh, you know, if you could find a way to create some formulaic approach to the, these other fundings that are, in, in many cases, like a, a school like UT Southwestern, uh, one, of the, one of the best of the nations for, for clinicians and research, uh, relies heavily on th- that, those fundings. And they, they don't care whether they call them special item, but they do, they do want the funding, and they, they're willing to you know, make the case to defend it like a lot of schools. And so I think that's where the debate is. Do we have a, a more systematic approach or do we just keep doing these sort of ad hoc special items, which, as, as the chairman pointed out, some of these have been special uh, so long that they're not really special anymore. But if I might interject, it creates some, some situations that are, there that are difficult to explain. We first rolled in there in our work group, and they said, okay, you get, we're going to zero out special items. That's $1.1, $1.2 billion out of higher ed. And then we go to $300, billion, 300 million, which was just almost zero. We ended up with an overall cut, as most agencies did. But then is the disconnect that the chairman talks about. Southwestern, which is a world-class institution, gets about no cut. General academic institutions like University of Houston get somewhere around 10%. It's difficult to justify intrinsically when you look at the missions of those institutions. Sure. So, as you mentioned, the, the, the budget that came out of the Senate included... Um, for a lot of the general academic schools, you know, somewhere in the range of 6 to 10% state funding cuts for the universities. Um, it didn't end up like that in the final budget. Um, and, you know, the final result for individual schools varied depending on the school. Um, Dr. Short, um, how, did, how did you guys feel about the compromise that was eventually reached at, at the end of the session? Well, we had been hearing massive cuts all, all session. So there was a collective sigh of relief uh, at the end. And we appreciate really so much the fact that uh, this, the legislature ended that, that uh, issue with uh, basically uh, no cuts. We, we took no cuts uh, at the University of Houston, though um, two of our institutions in the University of Houston system did experience um, some reduction. 
uh, and that's and that's uh, troubling. I mean, that's problematic for them, and and so we look for ways to to help them. But I think overall, we were extremely pleased uh, and and grateful uh, to the legislature. It, it doesn't mean that we didn't um, do some reduction ourselves. Uh, we uh, cut two and a half percent from academic units and 3% from administrative units so that we had resources within the institution to reallocate towards priorities, um, academic priorities and other priorities for the institution. So in a way, it was um, a really good exercise for us. Uh, but of course, like any institution of higher education, we always welcome more funding. <laughs> and so we are pleased that the legislature is going to be looking at that. We're, we're very pleased that the, the whole, uh, whole uh, issue of funding of higher ed is going to be explored. I serve on the um, General Academic Funding Formula Committee uh, established by the Coordinating Board, and so we're, we're very deeply involved in looking at the funding formula, and so we're pleased with okay. uh, the fact that you all are taking that on. But it, we, did, we did cut within our institutions. Sure. We did... Uh, do that. Uh, it was a good exercise. Uh, there was some squawking and some complaining among units, but on the other hand, uh, they understood that we were looking at ways to be more efficient and also to, to put funding behind major priorities. Dr. Hillier, were the community colleges, was your, was your school in the same situation coming out of the, the session? No, um, and I agree with Dr. Short, how higher education fared at the end of the session was much different than going in, and, and we were very thankful for that. For community colleges, our funding actually went up 3.1%, and um, I, I, yes, that's great. And I want to thank... Um, earned. Earned, yes. Um, but I want to thank... Um, Senator Seliger also for that because he was really at the table listening and helping move our agenda forward. Um, from an enrollment standpoint, community colleges had about a seven-tenths of a percent um, decline in enrollment, but our student success points were up 7%. And so the funding came in to help um, to fund core funding for community colleges, which really helps smaller colleges, but it also helped to try to sustain a little bit with our student success points. On, as far as special funding items, community colleges have very limited. We have $27 million between um, across the colleges, and I agree, looking at the formulas around this or looking at the structures is critically important. One of the big ones is a deaf school at Howard College. That is a special item. Is that really where it belongs? Or small business development centers that are funded through Dallas Community College. Um, that has to be looked at because of the overall job impact. And, and University of Houston is the funder of our small business development centers. Well, that comes in a different pipeline. Let's look at this from a consistency standpoint and what really can generate the jobs in Texas. When we get around to community college anecdotes, will you let me tell you one? Sounds good, sure. <laughs> uh -oh. Garrett, you know, the, um, the feeling I think is, it's, I think there was a consensus among university leaders um, at the end of the session that given the way the session started, how it ended was a relief, something to be happy about, something to be pleased about. Um, you've testified quite a few times before higher ed committees. Um, you've published reports on this um, about the long-term challenges right. of funding higher education um, and the shift of the burden of who pays for higher ed in the state. Did we make any progress in that area? Yes, we, I think it's important to note too that there was a lot of great work that went into this session. Um, a lot of important work and where we ended up um, was a lot better than things could have been. But we also recalibrated the conversation during the last interim. The coordinating board in its annual review process was recommending a 9% increase to account for enrollment growth, inflation. Um, to look at our projections, we have a very aggressive statewide goal. We want to make sure that 60% of all Texas 25 to 34-year-olds have a college education, workforce credential, certification for our labor market. I think we all know that the future, our economic future in Texas will hinge on our talented workforce. Um, and we moved away from that conversation because of budget realities, because of constraints during the session. We didn't have that conversation. Um, and we make choices. Um, I'll point to, to Tennessee, which has made some different choices and priorities 
Um, in the long term, we need to get back to that conversation because we're part of a national trend, but not all states are disinvesting from higher education the same way that we've continued to do so. I think 2010 was the first year that, on a per-student basis, the state was putting in less money than we ask families and, and students to put in. So that dynamic shifted. About every decade, we spend about $1,000 less as a state on higher education. At some point, that trend is going to come back to haunt us. Um, I'm not saying we, that funding is the only answer. We're doing lots of programmatic and policy addresses. San Jacinto is doing a lot of work trying to connect their programs to the workforce. Um, our community colleges are becoming increasingly important in how we address things like dual enrollment, how we get certifications in workforce, labor market value in high schools. Um, but none of that is going to be done um, for less and less funding every year. And so there's a lot of work to be done. So one of the things that came out of this budget compromise, right, was a, a writer in the document calling for a joint interim committee to, to study these issues. Um, Senator Seliger, what do you expect to come out of that process? Is this just a special items review, or do you think we'll see that conversation about do we need to fundamentally shift how we pay for it? I have absolutely no clue because none of the, the uh, Senate members are on the Standing Committee on Higher Education, so I have no idea. At the same time, a lot of those issues we intend to address in the Standing Committee as well, both special items and, and funding and things like that. Um, and, and so I can't tell you where that's, that's going to go, but it's a discussion that will go on now. And it's going to go on for as long as it is one of the priorities of the state of Texas. If we are going to have 60% of Texans get a certificate diploma or diploma by 2030, we're going to have to look at all of the factors that, that weigh in there. Certainly cost is one of them. Um, that number of young people that have to work while they go to school. Uh, diversity in, in, in universities and in colleges. So I don't know what that, that joint committee is going to do right now because it's, a, it's, it's really unusual in the way it's been composed in a way that most people have not seen before. Well, and I was going to ask about it. I mean, what should we read from that? What, what do you, were you surprised to not, you know, the chairman not to be on there or other members of the committee not to I'm, be on there? I'm surprised to see a, a joint committee come in. I don't think I've seen one where... The chairman of the standing committee was not on the committee or, or chairing, and to that, I defer to, to Representative Branch, who did it for a, a long time. They're good members with good perspective, and I think that we'll see something productive. It doesn't change the work of the standing committee going forward. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 not advised. <laughs> but uh, I, I think. You know, the, I guess the larger question, Matthew, would be, is, yeah, this is going to be a discussion and has been a discussion. And so, uh, obviously, you have uh, uh, states putting in less, and that's not just Texas. I mean, there's, there's you know, you can look, look around at the data, but as a general trend, uh, while it's come back up a little bit, we're still below 2008 uh, Great Recession levels. And therefore, uh, students and families and private sector scholarships, I mean, they're putting more in. In, in the equation, and therefore you, you, you can't keep that, that's not sustainable at some point because there's, because tuitions can't go up, and we, we all know that, so all of a sudden, you know, higher ed is faced with, we've got to have, we've got to innovate, we've got to cut costs, we've got to uh, be strategic, we've got to bring in private sector dollars, we've got to use technology better, so there's, there's a lot of things that, that are going to go into, whether it's in the standing committee or, or a, a, some blue ribbon panel, it's, it's going to and the universities and the co-board, they're, they're all going to be looking at this. And at some point, you know, you're going to have uh, to make some bold moves. We, we made some, you know, pretty dramatic things happen uh, in 2009, 2011, and whether it was the Tier 1 effort or whether it was uh, in success points or the TSTC, you know, uh, performance funding. We, we, uh, I, I think at some point the four-year general academics should, should move toward uh, the success points type model. We we now have some good data from Tennessee and other states, and so it, it, it's and technology's coming, and there's a lot of lot of credibility for uh, the success rates of uh, uh, the performance of hybrid and online education, and the costs obviously at some point really drop drop down. So I think this conversation needs to be had, and I agree that that, that with Garrett that we sort of got off track. Uh, the last two sessions, it seems to me, from someone on the outside, whether it was guns on campus or whether it was, uh, we did get the TRB bill uh, finally done in 15, but then 
This time, everyone was focused on just recovering what they had, and so you lost the reform uh, aspect of the conversation. Dr. Hillier, uh, the, the subject of success points comes up, um, something that community colleges have experience with. Um, how is that? Can you explain how this, how this works for sure. you guys, and, and how and is it working well? So the success points really measures the progress of a student through our whole mission. So we look at students as they're coming in, if they're prepared, to, and if they're not, when we get them through developmental education, we get points for that. As they move through their college-level courses, English and math, there's points, and then completing 15 hours, 30 hours, and then um, when they transfer or earn their associate degree. So the points are really about the pro progression of the students based on our mission. Um, and I had rep uh, mentioned to Representative Branch earlier, we really went down this road because of his leadership and his desire to look at this kind of a system. And that's how community colleges designed it. We thought we were going to do it before the legislature did it to us. And, um, and so we designed the system. We pulled together community colleges. We looked at other models across the country. And so this is our, our third session of funding around that. Um, we have seen increases. Success points went up about 7% across the state this um, session. Only seven colleges had a decline in their success points, so that means 43% or 43 had increases. And that's in comparison to 23 community colleges that had declines in contact hours. And so there's a real emphasis. There's a, you're starting to see, no, this isn't tied to enrollment. This is tied to getting our students through the system. Um, we had set it up at 10% of our funding model. Right now, it's at 11% of our funding. Our biggest challenge is we have to continue to fund it appropriately. And it was funded at $185 a point um, when we first went into it. This time it's at 171 or 72 And if we're a funding success, we've got to maintain that level. But it is working for community colleges. And as we prepare for the next session, we're looking at what should that percentage be for the future. But again, we need to know where the state will fund that. Is there a risk that... It's, it loses its influence if the amount goes down where, you know, if, if, if it's not funded to a certain level, it becomes less of an important kind of benchmark for the colleges to... Well, um, success, student success is an important benchmark sure. for us all the time. And um, our faculty, our staff, our institutions are focused on that. And I can tell you at San Jacinto College, that's one of our strategic goals. That overarches our entire culture. <laughs> But when you start having the conversations around, well, we're seeing these kind of increases, but the funding's going down, it starts, your people start to question, well, what is the state really telling us, and how do we put the pieces together? In the end, it becomes what we need to do institutionally anyhow, but it does, um, it does make you wonder, where should you be focusing? But for us... Um, because of all the work that we've done around student success points, around our student success agenda, we have seen tremendous increases in our success, our students earning credentials, and then students completing on and transferring. And so it's a mixed signal you get. Sure. When is success worth less? I would argue never. And so important is it. The, the, the good news is, is these institutions are always fixated that and always working toward it. But when it comes to funding, I think that should be the real emphasis. And that's where the people get, in some respect, maybe the most value for their dollar is in success. If I can add to that, I mean, this is built on the adage that we get what we pay for. And in part, our systems pay for contact hours. Our community college system is still based on 89% of those dollars after core is on contact hours. And we all want more than to just sit in our classroom. We want to make sure that we're learning and getting out of that classroom what we need. And what it does is, and many of the individuals I've spoken to in, in colleges and leaders, is that it's changed the culture within those institutions. Even if the dollars aren't at 50% or wherever they need to be, Tennessee's is 100%. Even if it's not the incentives we might want to see, it does change the culture. Now, student support services are that much more important because they're right. part of the financial mission of the institution. It elevates those pieces we want to see become even that much more important. Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I, I was in Tennessee when all of that was about. Right. I was part of, part of all of that, so I know it very well. Uh, but even though we've struggled here with um, performance uh, 
based funding for universities. And that's still on the table. We're still working with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I know the difference it can make. I saw the difference that it makes. I was just going to say, put a plug in with the University of Houston. Even in th- the face of that, we've moved to performance funding in our university. Our colleges now are ba- funding is based, allocation is based totally on performance. They have performance measures. We call them success measures. And they're tied to graduation rates. They're tied to all of those factors that play in to making uh, a university focus on students and focus on their success. Uh, we, we're working in Houston um, with all of our partner community colleges, and, and San Jacinto is a member of our Houston GPS initiative, which is a, a large initiative to create um, uh, student success using those research-based uh, dimensions that we know lead to students graduating, graduating on time, uh, and graduating with the least amount of debt. And so we're all working as a partner in a partnership, a very large partnership in the Houston region, uh, to do the very kinds of things that that the the state and the coordinating board and the legislature wants to see us do in terms of making sure our students graduate that we meet those numbers that the coordinating board has set for us for an educated citizenship in Texas. And so even if performance funding statewide is not there, and we're still working on it, uh, we've implemented that. We've embraced that at the University of Houston. So I just wanted to let you know what we're doing. And again, the community colleges, four systems around us are all part of that. Is there anything else you want to see come out of this committee or this discussion about how we're funding? I mean, what are, what are the, univers- the four-year universities going to be emphasizing in this exploration over the next few months? Well, I think that definitely with the leadership of the coordinating board and the, and the master plan, uh, we're focused, as we did in Tennessee, on graduating more students, at least with some type of certificate or uh, credential uh, that makes them workforce ready and gives them every opportunity to uh, secure uh, a, a good future for themselves. And so that's definitely, um, even the research universities have taken that on as a, an important focus. And, and, and I've always argued that even though we are a tier one, and thank you so much uh, for the emphasis on that, and research is an important component, research also uh, prepares our students for all kinds of employment opportunities. And it also attracts um, uh, high-end industry to the state, which then creates employment opportunities. So please understand, even though we're tier one research, uh, our students are our single priority, our primary priority in their success. And so I think that would be true for all universities. And I think uh, what we're learning, Matthew, is it's also, you know, I think one of the fears of the outcomes-based uh, model, even though we were trying to really just get our toe in the water at 10 percent, and, you know, in, 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 in uh, 11, the budget had to, the base budget had to consider a model like that, and then ultimately, I think fatefully, we went, we had two choices, and they uh, started with a base budget that didn't have that. Um, but but I think some of the fear around it, it, it change and, and whether or not you're going to get enough money and whether you go know, okay I'll take it I'll take performance funding if it's additional money and all all that <laughs> stuff uh, but what, but I think now with the, with more data out there uh, for what what uh, Brent just mentioned and what we know about from Tennessee is actually it's a, it's a more stable funding stream because you're managing toward these outcomes anyway and and therefore you're not relying on who shows up. You know, uh, in in class on the twelfth day, and and therefore it's actually if you were a university leader, you actually I can I can manage toward these outcomes. I can shape what my criteria are. I'd rather have these. It's going to actually stabilize my funding going forward. And so, uh, to me, I, I hope we we will move in this. And I, it, 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 at a minimum, raising the, this focus on outcomes. Uh, you, Dr. Short just talked about what they're doing on on campus. Even though we didn't do it at the legislature, uh, I remember we pushed that issue hard in '11, and then '13, uh, Dr. Powers, uh, Bill Powers here, uh, UT president, said we're going to go to 70. We're going to go from 51 percent graduation, four-year graduation, to 70 percent. We were stunned that he went that high. Uh, this year, last week, Greg Fendus announced 66 percent uh, graduation rates at UT Austin. They used to be 51 just four years ago. 
that's because I think <laughs> we, we forced the issue and uh, it became an incentive, a cultural incentive, uh, to, to change. And so, you know, I think, as, as the chairman pointed out, incentives matter. Oh, it's, it's important to note that a, a comprehensive performance-based funding plan, maybe not perfect, but comprehensive, has gone to the legislature and passed the Senate twice and, and then not passed into law. And so I know who's helping to get it passed among universities. I don't know who's working against it. At the end, it's, it's a good plan to go forward. Looks completely different than success points in the community college or the TST, TSTC funding, which is almost all uh, uh, performance-based. But one of the interesting statistics here that, that Dan talks about, when you talk about completion, Walter Wendler, the new president of West Texas A&M, was, was talking the other day and said that their four-year graduation rate now is about 40%. He finds completely inadequate, and it's going to improve. But what do you do in a, in a university that has so many students who have to work? Not unusual. UTRGV is the same thing. And has so many first-generation students. But if they get students from the community college with an associate's degree, that graduation rate goes to 80%. And look at the cost at the end of that, that four years. It's just one of the best things going on in, in higher education and emphasizes that graduation rate that Representative Branch is talking about. Um, one thing uh, that I forgot to mention at the start is that we'll have, we're going to uh, devote the last 15 minutes of this panel to audience questions. Um, so in a few minutes, uh, I'll turn it over to you. If you have a question, please line up behind one of the two mics here, and, um, and we'll call on you and allow you to present that question. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to talk um, to our two university leaders about, um, you know, kind of an unexpected uh, added challenge that has come on this, which was Hurricane Harvey, you know, affected both of your areas very strongly, um, significantly. Uh, Dr. Hellyer, how is San Jacinto College faring from this storm, and, and what is it going to mean for you guys for the next few years? Okay. So for San Jacinto College, overall, we had minimal damage. A um, million dollars compared to Hurricane Ike when we were around $8 million. The greater impact is that we must miss seven days of instruction, and then our, it's the impact on our students and our employees. And so our enrollment is still up, but we are doing everything to keep those students. Um, and that means we have vendors bring in donating books, publishers donating books. We've had emergency relief funds. And it becomes a whole different level of flexibility in how you, you manage some of that and get them the support. The other thing is, is what our faculty have done. Um, we did not extend the calendar. We used our Hurricane Ike recovery plan, which is really based on a lot of um, use of Blackboard, um, online hybrid options, to make sure those students were getting the student learning outcomes. And so all the faculty were turning in their plans as of last Friday to make sure how we were meeting these needs. And again, without the technology component, that online co component, um, we, we would be in a different place. It's the longer-term impacts. I mean, you know, I had a student last night who had been at our north campus um, living in FEMA housing, and they have now moved him down to our south campus. Well, that's 40 miles of difference. And so how do I help that student with no transportation? And so we're working on transfer plans like that. But it's a matter of being flexible, holding your standards, but also understanding you have different emotional levels here, and your employees the same way. I, I would echo exactly what she's saying. We were, we were closed. Um, we had uh, damage to classrooms. Just an, an example of what we had to do. We, I was told we have 13 classrooms damaged, and I thought, oh, good. We'll be able to roll back in on the, the 5th of... Uh, 5th of September, and no problem, we'll find, well, 13 classrooms means 168 classes that had to be relocated, and we were able to do that in three days, simply because people just pulled together. Um, the resilience, I think, was the thing that really stunned me, not only the resilience of the students and the faculty, but the, the, the community, because it is, we're still suffering from the damage. Our faculty our students are still suffering from it. We even extended uh, uh, the date for drop-ad. Uh, I received 300 email requests 
from students, and I learned about their stories because they had to give a Harvey reason why they wanted the extension, and I'm just stunned at the situations our students face in particular uh, and how grateful they are that we were, as, as Brenda said, flexible. Uh, we were flexible with course delivery. We were online. Uh, the faculty have really come together and really worked with students to, to help them um, understand that we care. The, the, the sense of caring has been really, really important. And our students and the whole community has responded in kind. I'm very, very pleased with, with um, what we've seen. Uh, but it was, that's not to say this has not been a very trying and traumatic time. Um, I could write a book, as she could, about how to, how, to, how to deal with this. And communication became the absolute central thing. The, the fact that we started communicating immediately with students, communicating immediately. During the whole week, we were closed. I think that made a tremendous amount of difference because people were out there in flooded houses and students couldn't connect online and they're like, what's happening? What do we do? What's going to happen? I've got, I've got assignments that are due the day we get back. Do I, how can I do that? I, and so we were very responsive to that and the goodwill that I think that created got us off on a, we're on a good start now. We're, we're doing really well. Um, and I think that's in the face of, I tell people 51 inches of rain in four days. Think about that. Uh, <laughs> the fact that we were, we're not all in, motorboats floating around still, uh, I think, is a, a speaks to, the again, the resilience of the Houstonians, the resilience of our faculty, staff, and students. And then uh, HISD closed for another week. So we had faculty, staff, who, and students who had children uh, with nowhere to go. And so we um, held a science camp on campus, put it together in two days, and it was filled up immediately so students could come Students uh, who were children of our faculty and staff had a place to go, and, and I think that that also was just an example of the way we responded. Do you have any audience questions? Hi, Micah Ringo from Colleyville, Texas. Um, I have a two-part question. What have been the primary driver, drivers of the skyrocketing tuition over the last decade or so? And what can we do to reduce the amount of debt that students are graduating with? Okay. So what's the cause of the rise in tuition over the past generation, and, and what can be done about it? Who wants to take that one? Well, I guess one of the macro responses, I'd say, Matthew, is that as you, know, you, you, you see that the, sort of the famous chart where state funding is dropped, and so therefore you know, the, 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 the immediate customer, the student, uh, you have to raise the price to fill in the gap as state funding goes down. So that would be, uh, you know, it's a it's a more complex answer than that. But that's the the uh, simple answer. And then obviously, in order to temper that in Texas, we had some uh, pretty you know dramatic rises in the in the post two thousand three, and then in the more recent years, it's flattened because we had leadership saying you know putting pressure on institutions which forces the innovation, whether that's you know, online or cost-cutting or bringing in the private sector, trying, trying to innovate in order to um, get revenue or cut costs uh, because you're not getting it, you're not getting the state subsidy, ultimately. When you think about Texas, just think about, we have a budget of over $200, million, $200 billion for a two-year budget. The higher ed piece is about $20 billion. And then ultimately, what goes into the I and O formula, and even if you add special items, it, it's a little over three billion dollars. So at some point, what even within higher education, there's a squeeze for those dollars. The HRIs get a significant amount of the money, which is not to the you know the undergrad, the, the gen, general academics. So at some point, it's it's a you know somewhere a little over you know one percent of the overall budget that's actually going into that part of higher education. So um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, um, a limited investment, and yet we know for every dollar put into higher education, there's, there's a lot of studies out there that say we get $18 back. So I'd like to, to add to that if I can. That the, sure. there, there's a structural component to this as well. When we go into a recession, as we had twice in the 2000s, 
Student enrollment soars during recessions because there's not as many jobs. It's a good time to go back into education. So we saw enrollment uh, shortly after the 2001 recession, after the Great Recession, skyrocket. But the problem with that is that our state funding hits a budget crisis at those same times. And so structurally, we can't keep up with enrollment. We make cuts. And then when we get into better times, we don't always, we're not able to look back and remake those investments. So there's a ratcheting down effect that's been happening at least over the last um, several years. Since 2003, uh, state support of colleges and universities has gone down 27%. Tuition and fees have gone up 90%. There is a clear sort of, of disconnect there. In the decade before 2003, uh, when tuition was regulated, tuition actually went up more than during the deregulated period. And we sort of have to look at these. The thing that sort of levels that out and makes it more rational, I think, is performance-based funding. So it ensures that if tuition is going to go up, that production is going to go up. And I I think that's the important point. But here's, I, I don't know if this is good news and bad news. And if funding for higher ed went down 10% tomorrow or 20% tomorrow, the institutions, certainly the two he represented here today, would perform very, very well. And, and, and so qualitatively, people have a hard time associating it with the performance of those institutions. Nobody dies. Institutions continue to do a good job and, and things like that. That's the good news. Somewhere here, though, when we have, if we look what we want for an educated or, or trained workforce. It's very much tied into their education. One of the things that we did was increase the money that went into Texas grants. And it is those scholarships in very large part and formula funding that keep the cost down. Where they don't exist, the cost to the, the student goes up. Let's go to another question. Uh, good morning, John Fitzpatrick with Educate Texas. Thank you guys for being here. Um, first, our heart goes out to those of you in Houston, you know, with everything that you've been going through and some of the foundations we work with are setting up a Harvey Health Fund to try to Thank provide you. college students. Thank we you. Just, we hope to have, have more to share on that. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about transfer and what your thoughts are about the strengths and weaknesses of the current system, about students transferring successfully from two-year to four-year institutions. You know, from my perspective, Texas has that the highest relative number of students earning baccalaureate degrees that either transfer with an associate or have a good amount of community college credits. There are some institutions that are knocking it out of the park, but in too many of our two-year and four-year relationships, it's very much hand-to-hand combat, where it depends on the individual kid, you know, having a lot of agency, you know, and working through the, the different offices, or that there happens to be angels at the individual two-year and four-years that are making it happen, but we don't seem to have a very good system, you know, and our data doesn't look great on transfer compared to most of the other 50 states. So, in my opinion, it's an issue that has to be addressed um, from a policy issue. Um, I can tell you we have a great relationship working with the University of Houston and with um, the sister institutions within that institution but they're right in my backyard, and we, we have conversations. We pull together the transfer agreements. We're working on pathways, and that's what Dr. Short's GPS program is all focused on. But um, there's so many other components of the transfer situation. It's very cumbersome, the type of agreements that I have to have with every four-year university, and then it gets into the divisions and the departments, and it's messy, and the ones who end up losing are the students. 74% of the bachelor degree... Um, earners in the state of Texas have community college credits. And so how do we really work to, to not lose that? What are all the steps involved with it? I think um, we have to get around the table and have those conversations to really figure out how do you eliminate um, these, these barriers, because the losers are the students. Um, and again, the regional partnerships are incredible, but I've got students that are going plenty of other places where they don't have those regional partnerships. I think you bring up just an absolutely critical point because I, I tend, uh, of course, I come with a, b- a background of having seen uh, the transfer uh, development of a statewide transfer policy, so I know how that can operate. But I think it's absolutely essential that we look at our system of education. I would argue K-20 yes. because to the extent yeah. to which we are working with K-12 schools, particularly the high schools, so that there's a seamless transfer into 
community colleges or the universities and then a seamless transfer from two-year to four-year, we highly value that. And I think the state of Texas needs to put a value on that uh, even more so that students never face a barrier uh, if they complete a two-year degree and want to uh, achieve the baccalaureate degree. I think it's just essential to, again, reaching the numbers that we aspire to as a state in terms of an educated citizenry. So I thank you for bringing that up. But I will say the work we're doing with Houston GPS uh, is something that could be emulated in other, in fact, it will be emulated in other urban settings nationally because they're already looking at what we're doing. But it is, it is a way of thinking about it across the state of Texas. Let's go up to the top and then we'll come back down. Mr. Groves earlier mentioned a goal that you have of 60% of 25 to 34-year-olds to have affordable education. How do you define affordable education, and how would further affordable education policies apply, apply to public and private universities? Yeah, so the goal just states that we want to have 60% of our population from 25 to 34 have a post-secondary degree. Um, what's novel about our approach is that we do have a student debt goal within our larger overarching plan. To my knowledge, it's one of the, might be the only state, one of the few states certainly that's put that into our goal. Um, it's difficult to get our hands wrapped around debt and affordability because student debt is how many of us access college. So we don't want to say all debt's bad, all debt's good, but we need to reduce the growth that we're seeing in this. And so the goal says we want to tie it to earnings. We want to make sure that students coming out of school, um, that the debt that they have is relational to the employment that they have coming out. Um, with the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, I've been able to look at some student debt numbers locally. I'm um, in Dallas County. Um, they're somewhat alarming, the amount of debt and the amount of debt that's becoming delinquent that our Texans are holding. There's almost $1.4 billion of debt that's over 90 days past due in Dallas County, and it's a growing amount. So student debt is something we need to get our hands wrapped around and figure it out, um, but by no means do we need to say that all debt's bad. It's really, if you don't graduate from college and you also have bills to pay, that's the travesty. And so it really, for me, comes back to Completion And one other piece, I want to put some numbers on our last conversation. I think many of you are familiar with the eighth grade cohort data. What that tells us is that among 100 eighth graders, 21 of them get a post-secondary degree in Texas, including a workforce certificate. That means nearly 80% of the next generation of Texans are not going to be able to compete for jobs in the economy. And that's an alarming statistic. We actually import more well-educated workers into our state than we produce ourselves. That is a giant challenge that we need to address. We lose half of our high schoolers when we transition to high, into college. We lose another half of those that do the transfer from two years to four years. These linkages, we've got to get our hands wrapped around. And the affordability piece, um, we need to do a lot of work there as well. It, it, admittedly, uh, debt, in a way, is a legislative choice because we're the ones who determine what goes into formula funding for the institutions and goes into those scholarships. And it's something that we fight with all the time because that has to compete with all the other allocations in a $200 billion budget. But clearly, it's, it, it needs to be one of those priorities, and we work very hard at affordability. The average tuition in, in Texas is less than the national average, and in community colleges, and it is a fraction. There's a huge diversity within the state of Texas when you talk about $2,700 a semester at University of Texas Permian Basin and I, I, two or three times that at University of Texas Dallas. Both great universities that improve all the time and the University Six, of Houston seven. is somewhere in between there. But that's sort of the, the things that we deal with. Will we do away with debt? No. It is probably the single most productive debt a person will ever incur. Uh, at the same time, Garrett points out that one of the most important things, if one incurs debt and then does not get a certification or diploma, we're wasting time in a class. We're not wasting time in a classroom, but we're not maximizing the value of the time in that classroom or the debt incurred. All right, so we have about three minutes left, so we'll, we'll try to get through the... Uh, uh, might not get to everyone, though, but we'll try to get at least one or more, two more. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Beth Andre, and I work at student, uh, student Emergency Services here at UT Austin. Um, something we've seen is that a lot of students um, from UT Austin come from the Houston area. They were relying on their families to help them with books, tuition. Now they're having to buy new homes, things like that. Um, 
is, is there is it going to be up to individual institutions and students changing their estimated family contributions um, in the upcoming years to help pay for college or is, has there been any thought on what to do at, at a state level to support those students I think it's not clear yet what the disaster response is going to be. If the money is allocated, I think the emphasis is going to be on infrastructure and people to live and go to work and things like that. That has not yet been addressed yet, but I think what we're doing is the institutions right now are examining very carefully how they can help the students because they want them to stay and want them to get that degree. Were any kind of funds that we can make available? Um, yesterday we received another 20000 from Scholarship America to try to help supplement some of that financial aid. Um, Dr. Fitzpatrick talked about the Harvey Relief Fund. That'll benefit all of the institutions in that region. And so I think there's, we just got to get creative again. And there aren't any real rules that we are trying to just be, again, flexible around it from an institutional standpoint. Let's do one last question. Sorry to our person at the end of the line. Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Emily. I'm from Texas. I'm a student at the University of Oklahoma, and I've seen um, just like here in Oklahoma, the funding from our legislature for higher ed is dropping every year. And not only does that increase our tuition, which I think is kind of the most obvious problem, but I've also seen essential services um, and programs at our school cut, like a lot of mental health services. Oh, you should transfer. No, we've seen a lot of mental health services and other essential services at our school um, cut or reduced. And I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on um, beyond just like give the schools more money. You know, what other ways can we try to fix that and try to not have to get rid of those services? From a budgetary point of view, we try to allocate them money and let them make the choices based upon the needs of the institution and the student, and you can probably refine that. Yeah, I would say you've got to innovate. That's what the difference, what Steve Jobs said, the difference between leaders and followers is innovation. And so to me, you can just cut programs, but also I think you can look for ways to bring in, you know, we matching, bring in the private sector. I think we've bought... If you look at the TRIP program from the Tier 1 effort, I think we brought in over a billion dollars into higher education by having a, a, a public match and, and with, with the private gifts. So I, th I think schools are, uh, the, the leadership uh, at, at these universities that are, that are innovators are actually coming up with ways other than just getting rid of uh, important services. Everything we do is around how, how we try to balance the budget, but then how do we set the priorities? And um, Dr. Short had talked about what you're doing with your performance funding within your institution. It's maybe you have to quit doing some of the things that you've done in the past because you can't figure, you know, what's the real benefit, but what are the things that we have to stay focused on and who are the partners we bring to the table with us? Um, it's a lot more working with nonprofit organizations, helping to provide some of those services. It's not necessarily about hiring more people all the time, and that's where the innovation becomes. And we dig in hard at the institutions um, to try to figure out what should we be doing and how do we get the input from our students around those critical services. It's a juggling act. Okay, well, thank you to the panel, and thank you for your questions.